thank you for your welcome and uh, I, I, perhaps more than anyone else I've been particularly blessed this morning two Welsh hymn tunes <laughs> Blind Wern and Dimon Yesi and uh, you know it's a long time since um, I've sang uh, well certainly the first hymn Blind Wern it uh, gives you a chance to really uh, clear the tubes as it were and uh, you know give things a good airing as uh, Will has mentioned our final session Last but one session, rather, in the series of studies on Philippians is Philippians 4, two, uh, verses 2 to 9. Now, these uh, uh, sort of uh, closing passages in Paul's letters can be a bit tricky. You know, it's like watching a washing machine. You know, things going around, you know. Oh, there's Paul making a comment about some personal friend of his. Oh, look, there's a word of practical advice. Oh, no, there's some statement of doctrine. And they're all sort of whirling around, all somehow mixed up and, and uh, very difficult to disentangle and to kind of make any sense of it. it all very bitty, random, isolated uh, uh, comments. But I believe it is possible to discern uh, a theme uh, within the passage that we are looking at today. It falls naturally into three sections, which is very helpful for a preacher. And, uh, 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 and I believe that the theme that is common, common to all three sections is the theme of peace. And if we look at the first uh, two verses, verses two to three, the passage that you see up there, peace, the absence of strife. His appeal to uh, Judea and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, this passage is a bit of a mystery. We don't know what they were in disagreement over. We don't, and in fact, there are other parts of this uh, passage which are a mystery. We don't know anything about Clement, who is mentioned there. And he also says, I ask you, my true companion. So who is he talking about there? It's obviously a very personal uh, a comment. Some translations actually insert a name there. They think true companion is, is not just a sort of description, but it is actually somebody's personal name. So the whole passage is shrouded in a bit of mystery. And we don't know what Eudia, Euodia rather, and Syntyche had quarreled about. What was the uh, controversy uh, or the conflict between them? Were they uh, in disagreement over some point of doctrine? Um, perhaps uh, uh, they had different views about the uh, coming of Christ or the uh, virgin birth or whatever. We don't know. <clears throat> Maybe there was some rivalry, some conflict over their position in the church and their functions within the church, the work and the jobs that they were doing within the church. Or maybe it was something far more personal than that. <clears throat> maybe, you know, Euodia had made some comment about Syntyche's hairstyle. You know, it might have been just a very personal, trivial comment. What David Skelton used to call custard Christians, people who get put out over trifles. <laughs> Look, David Skelton said it, not me. <laughs> so, what was it all about? And it's interesting to notice that Paul does not take sides. He's not saying, you know, well, tell Syntyche that she's got to agree uh, with Euodia, that, that she's the one that's right and Euodia's the one that's wrong. He says, uh, take, uh, uh, tell them to be of one mind. He doesn't take sides, rather. He says, they're both on my side. Literally, they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. 
So he's not taking sides, he's not being partisan, he's not having any sort of uh, 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 favoritism here whatsoever. That's very kind of you. I hope it's for me anyway. Thank you. Yeah. I think I overdid it a bit with that Welsh hymn. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you. And also you notice that he doesn't sort of rebuff them uh, or exclude them in any way. He doesn't reject them. These two women, along with Clement, and all the rest of Paul's co-workers, their names are in the book of life. So obviously the key motivation here, as far as Paul is concerned, is for there to be a unity, a togetherness, a harmony, a joining together. And uh, it's uh, significant that Paul uses this phrase, to be of the same mind, or the authorized version says, to be of one mind in the Lord. And there are, there's an echo there uh, of chapter 2, which Kevin spoke on a few weeks ago, where you remember Paul said, let this mind be in you, the mind of Christ Jesus. Being not being equal with God, he didn't cling to or hang on to or, 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 or uh, grasp that sort of position of equality. He relinquished it. He relinquished his reputation. He became a man. He relinquished his uh, full claim, as it were. He didn't cease to be God, but he surrendered the attributes uh, of God uh, as he became fully man. He became of no reputation. He was obedient. Not my will, but thine be done, he said. Obedient unto death. And not just death, but the death of a criminal. And Paul says, now that's how you should think. That's the mind that should be in you. And if Yodia and Syndica can get hold of that mind, if they can grasp that, then there's no problem. Uh, you know, Christ had no concern for his reputation for, or, or, or did not demand that he should be recognized or that people should uh, see his status. No personal issue should take precedence over God's will. And this is further explained in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, a lot of people miss the context, overlook the importance of 1 Corinthians 13 because they don't appreciate the context of the chapter. You see, 1 Corinthians 13 comes between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I'm sure you didn't need me to tell you that. You could work that out for yourself. But 1 Corinthians 12 is all about the unity of the body and about the diversity of spiritual gifts, which are all of equal value, all have their place, all play a part in building up and edifying the body of Christ. And chapter 14 is about the excessive, about the problems in the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, the excessive use particularly of speaking with tongues, not a problem we tend to get in our churches today, about a, a, a sort of dominating meetings. And there was an element of a class uh, issue here, that the upper class members of the church in Corinth, as they did with the Lord's Supper, uh, tended to ex display a certain degree of discrimination against the lower classes. And uh, for some reason, and scholars tell us that, you know, the exercise of spiritual gifts was something that was being dominated by the more upper class members of the church at Corinth. So there was, there was this sort of domination, there was this sort of rivalry there was this competition. There was this uh, sort of wanting to be 
spiritually superior to others to be claiming uh, what they thought were the better gifts. And if you look at the passage that's uh, 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 on the screen at the moment, and look at those words now. I know that there is a wider application. I know that should be the motivation for all our expression of God's love. But Paul particularly, specifically, was talking about the way the church conducted its affairs. And if you look at that passage, you can, you know, insert into that, if you like, or impose upon that these ideas of the way that the gifts of the Spirit were being operated. Selfishness, you know, a, a kind of sort of showing off, a sort of uh, wanting to uh, have the preeminence uh, and the attention. And Paul says, you know, it's not proud. It's not uh, self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. I like to think perhaps uh, people were delivering words of knowledge. Brother so-and-so has been at it again. <laughs> Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love is not self-seeking. As one translation put it, love claims no rights. And it's that sort of willingness. It doesn't mean you become a dog's body, but it's that willingness to submit. I'm just looking a little further ahead into the passage. We're not looking at it yet at the moment, but Paul says further on in the passage, let your moderation be known unto all men. And William Barclay, the commentator, says, you know, that's a very difficult, that word moderation in the Greek is a very difficult word to translate. And if you uh, use the Bible Gateway app, it, tells, it allows you to see a particular verse in all the English translations. It's very useful sometimes to do that. And, uh, you know, there are a variety of words, forbearance, patience, um, gentleness, William Barclay says none of these words, as helpful as they are, fully convey what he thinks is the impact of that word in the Greek. He says moderation means a sort of being willing to meet halfway. And I've put my own sort of word in there, not a Bible translator or Greek expert, but flexibility. In other words, to avoid extremism. That you don't take up a position which is at an, at an extreme, you know, which is, which is sort of unyielding, unbending, you know, and, and that can become sort of, whether it's with doctrine or, or position in the church or whatever it may be, that there is a willingness to meet each other halfway, to see that you are not necessarily the only one that's always right, you know, and, and, and you know, it's, 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 a, it's a valuable process, it's, it's, so simple, it's so down to earth. And he also goes on to say, the Lord is at hand. As if to say, well, you know, we haven't got time for all this petty squabbling. You know, there's not enough, we've got work to get on with. We need to be putting our efforts together into serving God, not into quarreling with each other. So that's the first point, peace, the absence of strife. And we look at the next section, verses four to seven, peace the absence of anxiety, the absence of anxiety or care or worry. He starts by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Now, you may be saying, well, how come you're talking about peace when Paul is saying rejoice? Well, Eric Dando used to say that joy is peace celebrating and peace is joy resting <laughs> you know it's a they're not different things they are two sides of the coin so although paul's reference here to rejoice 
may seem to be messing up my <laughs> interpretation and application of the passage. It fits in. It's peace celebrating. Um, and uh, he goes on uh, then to uh, say, do not be anxious about anything. Verses 6 to 7 could be subtitled, how to be free from anxiety. There's a, a plethora of what you might call secular advice on this sort of thing. You know, learn to accept the things you can't change. Well, that's not Paul's advice. Paul's advice contains four elements. And ask ourselves the question, when, how, why, and what? When? In every situation. Don't just simply accept the situations you can't change, because God can change them. And if he can't, or if he chooses not to change them, he can change you. So in every situation, there is no situation in which you cannot bring your cares and your anxieties to God. How? By prayer and petition. You simply ask. You know, again, over the years, we've tended to make some of these things very sort of complex, very... Uh, mysterious and mystical almost, you know, as if, as if there's something, you know, that's sort of uh, otherworldly about prayer. It is otherworldly in the sense that we are obviously reaching out to uh, the spiritual realm, but it's simple, it's straightforward. As James put it, you have not because you ask not. So by prayer and petition. When? In every situation. How? By prayer and petition. Why? With thanksgiving. And we've had a lot of emphasis on that this morning with thanksgiving. Uh, I think of the old hymn, you know, it is Jesus, the first and the last, whose spirit shall bring us safe home. We will praise him for all that is past. And why do we do that? Because that leads us on to the next section. We then present our requests unto God. Because of what we have known God do in the past, we can trust him for what he will do in the future. We will praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that is to come. Peter has a similar uh, encouragement, word of encouragement in his epistle, uh, which was not written, written to a specific group of believers, but to the believers that were scattered over what we now call Asia Minor. And he says, casting all your care upon God, because he cares for you. And that word casting is interesting. Remember when uh, they... Uh, disciples had been out fishing all night, had caught nothing. What did Jesus say to them? Cast your nets over the side. So what Peter is saying there is, fling your cares into the ocean of God's love. Get rid of them. Cast them overboard. Don't hold on to it. If you hold on to it, you haven't released them. So, uh, you know, it's easy to say, not always easy to do by any means. But make that your aim, to cast your cares upon God. So if you do all this, you make in every situation by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving making your requests known unto God. If you do all this, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God which passes understanding. There's no technique here. You can't sort of say, you know, do a, have a little book like, you know, how to uh, have the peace of God. It passes understanding. Uh, it's something miraculous, something supernatural, something that defies our understanding and our minds. You know, when I'm reading Paul's epistle, sometimes I like to think, 
What was Paul reading that day in his scriptures? He didn't have the New Testament, of course. He had the Old Testament. And uh, like, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, I think Paul had been reading Ecclesiastes. You know, Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Sometimes feel that when we suggest to people they read Ecclesiastes, we should give them the phone number for the Samaritans. <laughs> it can be a very discouraging book if you don't make it through to the end. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, uses, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses this phrase. Your faith is not in vain. Your, his death is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. It's as if Paul had read Ecclesiastes, read those words and said, no, 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 no. It's not in vain. And as far as this passage is concerned, I think Paul had been reading Isaiah 26, verse 3, which you see in front of you there. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on you because they trust in you. And I'm sure those were the words that inspired Paul to give these instructions and directions to the Philippians. Now, I just want to perhaps... Um, not a digression, but maybe just say a little bit more about what we mean by trusting in God. I think one of the regrettable, uh, unfortunate consequences of triumphalist theology is that we think that somehow faith has got to be something, you know, spectacular, dramatic. You know, that you have to psych yourself up to believe for something that's really way out. You know, and, you know it's almost become like a macho thing. You know, one pastor says, oh, we're trusting in God for half a million pounds for a new building. And the other pastor, another pastor says, oh, that's nothing. We are trusting God for a million pounds. You know, and, and it loses the essence of what trust and faith is. I think the most helpful passage in scripture here is the passage where we read about the Greek woman in the area of uh, Syrophoenicia. And she comes to Jesus. She's a Gentile. She says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus makes this amazingly curt, what appears to be curt reply. He says, I can't give the food for the children to the dogs, because that's how the Jews regarded Gentiles. So did she go away discouraged, deflated? No, she says, yes, Lord, she says, but even the dogs can eat the crumbs from under the table. And Jesus says, because of your great faith, crumbs, great faith, that's not what we tend to think, is it? You see, trusting God isn't somehow trying to force yourself to believe for something that, you know, as I say, something spectacular. Trusting God is simply willing to accept whatever God chooses to give you, whatever it is his will to put and place in your life. So that's the second aspect of peace. We talked about the absence of strife. We've talked about the absence of anxiety of care. But the third aspect is about a presence. The final aspect here is the presence of the God of peace. We might think, well, there's nothing better than the peace of God. Yes, there is. It's to have the God of peace with you. And there are two elements here in this final section of knowing the presence of the God of peace. Two simple words. One, think. And two, do in the authorized version. In the version that you have there, it's put into practice. But think and do. Think what? Whatsoever things are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. 
Now, I don't know what Paul had in mind with what he meant there. What is this whatsoever? But I think as a good starting point, we could start with the Lord Jesus. Make him the focus of your thoughts. I always like what we read about Philip, the evangelist. He went to Samaria, huge crowds. He preached unto them Jesus. He met the Ethiopian eunuch by the roadside. He preached unto him Jesus. The crowd, the size of the crowd, the congregation didn't matter. It was the message that mattered. He preached Jesus. And it's good that we should focus our thoughts. There may be other things as well. I don't know whether Paul was thinking of Beethoven's Ninth or Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake Ballet when he was thinking about these things. Some, some commentators suggest that that's the kind of thing Paul may have had in mind. But let's start with Jesus. The old Elim choruses, who remembers them? <clears throat> there was a song, about six or seven verses, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. And, you know, we, we could uh, fill our hearts and minds and souls when we look upon his eternal existence, his appearances in the Old Testament, his birth, his miraculous ministry, his teaching, his death and resurrection as we have done this morning, his ascension into heaven and his return, particularly his return. We don't um, really hear a lot about the return of Christ. I, uh, I think in the last 10 years or so, I've heard about four sermons on the return, the second coming of Christ. And I preached two of them. <laughs> in Wales, you know, the, the Pentecostals, they, they had, well, they were known as Pentecostals, but another nickname they had was the second comers. It was such a clear, obvious aspect of their teaching and preaching, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of the hymns we sang He's coming soon, changed in the twinkling of an eye. When the roll is called up yonder, what a gathering on that bright and golden morning. And one the story that one service, the congregation had really got caught up in the expectation of the Lord's return, sang all these hymns. Then the meeting went quiet and somebody started, he'll be coming round the mountain when he comes. <laughs> and somebody else joined in. He'll be coming round the mountain when he comes. And so it went on, and it was only when they were singing ay, ay, yippee, yippee, ay, <laughs> that they realized what they were singing. So, fix your mind on Jesus, whatsoever. Pure, noble, all those descriptions, they all fit Jesus, don't they? Think about such things. And then Paul says, what you've learned, or received, or heard from me, do so there are the two things. Think, meditation, contemplation. This is just a personal observation, but, and it's not just applicable to this church by any means. In fact, I, I would say that here in your meetings, it's less true. But in a lot of churches now, there's so little opportunity for contemplation, for meditation. You know what we used to have on a Sunday morning, our breaking of bread services. Time to reflect. Time to let God speak to us rather than us continually giving to God in, in, in praise. We, we provide plenty of opportunity for expression of emotion, but very little for the exercise of our minds. In fact, that's a, a, another little theme that's been running through these verses. Be of one mind. Let this mind be in you, which is of Christ Jesus. Think on these things. You will keep him in perfect peace, says Isaiah, whose mind is stayed 
on use. Think on these things. The engagement of the mind. And as I say, it's a personal observation, so feel free to disagree with me by any means. You've heard the expression, haven't you, that some people are so heavenly-minded they are no earthly use. Well, I believe it's the heavenly-minded people who are the most earthly use. Because we see things as they are. We know what's important. We know what matters. We know where our priority should be. Heavenly-minded people are the most earthly use. And that's why Paul says, don't only think on these things, but do these things also. Just want to conclude with a story that one of our senior ministers is with the Lord now, Robert Fenney. Many years he was pastor of the Mount of Olives Church in Bristol. And he described how one uh, weekend he'd noticed that one of the lads from the Sunday school had been absent for a couple of weeks and he decided he'd pop round to the home on the Monday morning to make sure that everything was okay. So he called on the house and the moment he stepped in, he realized that he shouldn't have gone, that it was a disaster. The child that was absent, that had been absent, was coughing away in the corner. There was a baby crying in the pram. The mother, I don't know whether there was a father around in the situation, but the mother was up to her eyes doing the Monday washing. And she was flustered and harassed. And, and obviously the last thing she wanted was a visitor that Monday morning. So he, he didn't stay too long. He prayed with the family and then made his way. The next Sunday morning, the lady was in church with her two children. And she says, you know, she says, when you came, it was chaos. It was chaos, she says. But when you went, there was something there that wasn't there before you came. She says there was such a peace. And this is the, this is the importance of not just knowing the peace of God, but knowing the God of peace. The God of peace, says Paul, the God of peace shall be with you. So it means that where we go, that peace is with us. I know there's a formal exchanging of the peace, but it's more than that. It's, it's being God, as it were, to those people that we move amongst. You know, we're hoping and trusting that there will be this interest, this response from the local area. People will come. But what they will be most impressed by, I'm sure, is that the peace of God is present in this place. And that the God of peace is present in this place. You look at the news, chaos, mayhem, everywhere. The last place where there should be any disharmony, any chaos, any sense of conflict should be the church of God. May God help us to know his peace. Amen. Thank you for listening.